My name is Hunter. And I'm Haley. And we're your hosts of Murder and Such, a podcast about true crime, serial killers, and other dark subject matter. Join us while we fill your ear holes with some crappy comedy and disgusting tales. You can now find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and all of your podcatcher services. You can like us on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. At Murder and Such. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Martinis and the Macabre podcast. This show contains graphic content and explicit language and is intended for immature adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Starting a new segment. Which is? It's called Fucking Really. <laughs> so you're going to have to find music for that. Okay. I'll play along. No, you have to make it happen. This is the thing that has to happen. All right. So on this Fucking Really segment, I am going to talk about a text I sent to Erica today. And what was my text? Um, Our fucking species is doomed. doomed. And he still hasn't told me what he meant. So, um, a little preface first. Um, In our elementary school here, you have a behavior sheet for the day. And whatever your behavior is, it corresponds with a color. Green is the norm. If If you land on green, that means you didn't get in trouble. You didn't do anything spectacular. You didn't give birth to a child or anything like that. You didn't save a life, but you were good. You didn't get yelled at. That's green. Then from down, it goes yellow, which means somebody probably had to sit you down and tell you to shut up. Orange, which means I probably had to tell you to shut up a couple times. And then red, which means we're now calling your parents. They're probably going to have to pick you up, and they're going to have to tell you to shut up. So now you guys know that. Okay, here it is. I'm going to take a drink. more than a drink that was a big drink so i'm playing fussy with my wife now i had to get a haircut today and i'm sitting there and there's a woman sitting catty corner from me and a kid comes out just got the haircut and everything and went to went to his mom mom paid for it and all that stuff i guess she had another kid so she sat back down with this kid this kid was probably about the age of our kid our youngest mm-hmm. nugget and then she run tendo run tendo and she was like, honey, you look amazing right now. And I looked over and I was like, oh, he does look kind of cute. Got a little high and tight cut, you know. It was cute. And she was like, do you want to tell me why you got on red today? And I was like, oh, shit. It's going down. And he was like, I was trying to tell all the other students that I was special. And one of the other students didn't. He said I wasn't very special. So I pushed him down really hard and he hit his head. And she was like, well, you are special and you don't let any student tell you that. And I'm thinking, what the fuck am I hearing? What? And then he was like, and then I pushed the teacher. 
And then she was like, you don't let a teacher, you don't let a student, you don't let anybody tell you that you're not special. You are so special. And I'm like, is he a fucking superhero? Yeah. Because he's just a you kid. You can be special and not be a dick and think you're better than everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I guess she saw me looking at her in disgust and disbelief. I would have been looking at her just like I'm looking at you now. Yeah. Because maybe we're strict or maybe we're asshole parents, but I like to raise our children. You don't put your hands on anybody. You don't. Unless put, you're defending unless, yourself. Unless they put their hands on you, you knock them the fuck out. But you're not better than anybody. You're yeah. not better than anything. You know, it's, you know, this is, sorry, kind of a shit life. We just got to put our heads down and power through. Hopefully things turn out good. Every kid is special in their own way. Yeah. It doesn't is. mean you're the ultimate. Yeah. And then, here's what really got me, and I was glad they called my name, and I said this out loud, too. I was looking over in just disbelief, right? And she was like, okay, everything's fine. I'm not mad at all. And this kid's like maybe seven. And she's like, do me a favor, really loud. Can you count to 100? And he was like, yeah! He's like, go ahead and do it. One... To, by the time he got to like 50, he was fucking up already. And everybody was sitting there having to deal with this kid counting to 100. And they were like... Per his mother's request. Yes. Because he's special. Apparently. Especially not good at fucking counting. I know that. And that's when they were like, Billy, you ready? And I, was like, and I stood up and went, Jesus Christ! <laughs> and I went to go sit down. Yeah, so... All right, guys, welcome to Martinis and the Macabre, the podcast where we drunkenly discuss morbid murders, mysteries, and mayhem. Fucking really? Fucking really. My name's Erica, and I'm joined by my husband and co-host, Billy. His name is probably Connor. (laughs) And uh, thanks for joining us this evening. I guess I'm going to have to find some music, which, as you're listening to this, you've just heard, I suppose. But you've also just heard a promo at the beginning of this show for Murder and Such. What up? With Hunter and Haley. Hi, guys. Please go listen to their show. They're a lot like us. They discuss all kinds of fucked up weird shit and make jokes about it. Um, I've kind of been their podcast buddy since they first started. And uh, we would like you guys very much to go and listen to their show. Subscribe. Give it thumbs up. iTunes reviews. Five stars. Anything you can, because it's a great show. Binge. Binge, 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 binge. Podflix and chill. <laughs> Podflix. So, uh, I had actually planned on doing a different episode this week that may potentially be a two-parter, but we're going to get to that next time. This one felt like it needed to have precedence, and you'll find out why near the end. Oh, the reason why I, I, I agree with two-parters, there are people who listen to podcasts that I've seen in Facebook and everything mm-hmm. who don't want one. They they kind of just want a big, long one, knock it out. Mm-hmm. And I don't want us to split it up to make it look like we're trying to fill, like it's filler. But I know that if an episode is so long, I know that after about an hour, I tune out. Mm-hmm. I'm at work, you know, and I'm listening. I'm intrigued. And you could be as charismatic as fuck, but after about an hour and 30 minutes... Well, and just 
for me personally, editing an hour to an hour and 30 minutes of audio, just for me, can take upwards of, what would you say, four or five hours? Takes a while. (laughs) So, like, editing the crossover episode we did with Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss, that was, you know, three hours of audio that I somehow whittled down to two hours and 15. Wish we could have kept more. And that took me almost two days with multiple hours put in both days to edit that. (laughs) So... For me personally, it's just, it's easier uh, on my end to not have to sit in one big bulk and edit all that. If we can do the next one in one part, we will. But it's looking from, you know, the number of pages that I've got outlined that it may be a two-part. But anyway, we're talking about something that's two weeks away in the future. (laughs) This time... We are on episode 38, and I thought, it's been a long time since we did a Kids Who Kill. Is this Kids Who Kill part three? This is part three. Cool. And this is the one that I thought needed to take a little bit more precedence. I had actually just finished the outline today and was going to record this as episode 39, but I thought this one should take front seat. So in this episode of Kids Who Kill, we are talking about Craig Price, the Warwick Slasher. Craig Chandler Price, also known as the Warwick Slasher, is one of the youngest killers in U.S. history, committing four murders between the ages of 13 and 15 in Warwick, Rhode Island in the late 1980s. Craig is an African-American who was born to working-class parents on October 11, 1973. He grew up in a small ranch house in the Buttonwoods neighborhood of Warwick, with his parents and brother. And looking through all the research, and I got stuff from multiple sites, I could only find a brother mentioned, and it was only mentioned once. So I'm assuming it was just him and his brother. He was known around the neighborhood as Iron Man for his hulking size and was considered a, quote, good-humored and vivacious boy in his early childhood. And he was large and in charge he had some heft to him you don't hear that word anymore vivacious we should bring it back i didn't think it was gone bring it back hashtag vivacious (laughs) by his teen years he began committing crimes with a group of friends and had accumulated a long list of juvenile offenses including drug charges breaking and entering robbery stalking peeping and assault and most of the assaults being committed against his own family members. He was known to have a temper, and police were called to his house on many occasions. But in 1987, at the age of 13, Craig's crimes became much more serious. Well, well that's what you do in 1987. It was, a, it was a hard time. <laughs> Craig's first murder was committed in the night of July 27th of 1987, just two houses away from his own home. 27-year-old Rebecca Spencer occupied the house, but had been packing in preparation to move. Craig had been watching her for some time, kind of peeping and stalking, because he was planning on breaking into the house with the motive of robbery. At some point while he was in the house, the two came face to face. So finding a packing knife nearby... Craig picked it up and began stabbing Rebecca, leaving her dead on her living room floor, 
having been stabbed 58 times. Then 13-year-old Craig just went home and resumed his day-to-day activities of robbery and assault, being a 13-year-old that just viciously murdered a woman. Well, you got shit to do. And stabbed her almost 60 times. If you, if you got shit to do, you don't waste time it takes to stab somebody 60 times. Erica, it's 1987. You're right. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Raspberry beret. What? 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 What was that? What? Fucking judge me. Oh, I'm judging. I'm judging <gasps> hard. Shut it. Okay. <laughs> Police had no concrete leads and the case kind of went cold. Jump forward to two years later on September 4th of 1989. Marie Bouchard had a bad feeling. She hadn't heard from her daughter over the Labor Day weekend. Her daughter, Joan Heaton, was 39 and had two daughters, Jennifer 10 and Melissa 8. They lived just five houses away from where Rebecca Spencer had been murdered. Concerned, Marie and her other daughter, Mary Lou, went to Joan's house. Joan's car was in the driveway, but no one answered the door when they rang and knocked. They entered. Somebody's the- being fucking lazy, am I right? <laughs> They uh, entered the house and were hit with the putrid smell of decay. Blood was splattered everywhere. And in the middle of the hallway was Joan lying on the floor with a blood-soaked sheet over her. Nearby was her oldest daughter, Jennifer, lying in blood. And eight-year-old Melissa was lying dead on the kitchen floor. Authorities believe the three had been killed three days before being found. The wounds were horrific. Joan had been bludgeoned, strangled, bitten, and stabbed 57 times. Jennifer was stabbed 62 times and was possibly bitten in the face. Melissa was also possibly bitten in the face, had her skull crushed with a kitchen stool, and was stabbed repeatedly once so fiercely that the knife blade actually broke off in her neck. Detectives working the case were shocked at the savagery of the crime and enlisted Greg McCrary, one of FBI's top profilers, to assist with the case. McCrary believed that the killer had to be someone from the neighborhood, connecting the murders to that of Rebecca Spencer two years prior and just five houses away. The M.O.s were the same, the killer breaking into the houses probably to commit a burglary, then being seen by the occupants and using a quote-unquote weapon of opportunity found already in the house to commit the crimes. This person wasn't bringing a weapon with them upon entering the house. There was also the obvious overkill, for lack of a better term. Yeah. That's literally overkill. Cops call it, (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) What the fuck? That knife broke. Yeah. So is the, like, the knives we have in our house that are in the kitchen, are those weapons of opportunity? Mm Mm-hmm. So anything can be. This microphone. Mm-hmm. This bottle I'm holding. Yep. The lamp. Mm-hmm. Anything you can grab near you and kill somebody with is a weapon of opportunity. So are my hands? No, that's not opportunity. They're attached to you. But you can snap somebody's neck with your hands. Yeah, but they're not a weapon of opportunity. Opportunity Until the opportunity implies... presents itself and you're like, hey, I'm going to fucking snap a neck. No. All right. I'm learning shit. This is cool. And I kind of think he's 
outdoing himself every time. Last one was 58. This one was, what, 62? 57 on the mother, 62 on Jennifer, and I couldn't find an actual number of stab marks on the youngest daughter. I wonder if he's going for top score, high score. Put your initials in, you know? I think he's just trying to make sure that they're down. That'll do it. (laughs) So, yeah, so there was the obvious overkill that was seen in the dozens of stab wounds on the victims. And McCrary thought that the quote-unquote frenetic manner of the stabbing that was seen on the Heatons could mean that the killer may have his own injuries and suggested that investigators should be on the lookout for anyone in the neighborhood with cuts or bandages on one of their hands. It was, you know, highly likely that in this, you know, fit of rage or whatever it was that while he's stabbing wildly, he could have injured himself. That's very possible, especially with a knife. When you, when, with stabbing... Yeah, you know that. <laughs> it's not like in movies. Like, you know, you got bone and tissue and it's a lot harder. So once you have, even in like a ice pick hold, it's going to meet with resistance. But you're going so hard and so fast to stab. Inertia. That your fingers are just going to slide right, right down Especially the Especially if they're covered in blood. Yeah, and so that's usually the one thing that gives it away is you just have a person hold their palm, and if there's a red scabbed line, then that means, you know. Yep. Have a good hilt. I'm not trying to give out a tip. I'm not trying to life hack this. Uh-huh. I'm just saying, you know. Have a good Martinis hilt. the Macabre does not support murders. Just putting that out there. Martinis in the Macabre is for entertainment purposes only. Exactly. Erica, go. The first break came the very next day, September 5th. Detectives Ray Pendergast and Mark Brandreth were driving through a park near the neighborhood when they spotted Craig Price. He was was, all, fuck my hand! Who was now 15. Detective Pendergast had actually coached Craig in a local basketball program in the past. So they pulled up next to him and asked him if he'd heard about the murders. And while they were talking, they noticed that his hand was bandaged. During the conversation, they asked him how he had injured his hand, and Craig told them that he had been drunk a few nights earlier and had punched his hand through a car window on Keeley Avenue. The detectives took note of Craig having an injured hand, but were kind of reluctant to automatically suspect a 15-year-old boy of committing such atrocious murders. You know, I hear that shit a lot, especially coming from guys. How they get mad and punch a wall? Mm Mm-hmm. Why? Why? What the wall ever fucking do to you? Well, all that's going to do is hurt your hand. And the, and the wall. The wall never asked for that. Yeah, I don't get that either. Poor drywall. Just drywalling. Just drywalling? New boot gooping. <laughs> I've never understood that. I've known so many people, especially when I was in the army. Like I got so mad at my wife. I went out in the garage and I punched a wall. I'm like, how'd that work out? You don't have a hole in your fucking wall. Mm-hmm. Go for a walk. Yeah. Go smoke a cigarette and go for a walk. Stupid. Well, they they took note of this, and he was definitely on their radar. So they began looking into Craig's story about breaking a car window. They couldn't find any police report that had been filed for any broken car windows in the area Craig had mentioned. So, you know, giving him the benefit of the doubt, they went ahead Which and... Which you would have to if you were his coach. There, you would have a soft spot for the kid. I get it. Yeah, he was like... Okay, well, let's go and drive over to the place and maybe, you know, somebody's window was broken. They didn't see a point in reporting it. 
Yeah, they wonder, drive over to Keeley Avenue to have a look around. I wonder if his partner really spoke shit to him, too. You know, like, maybe, you know, maybe he just got mad and punched a wall. Like, you just put out that we should look for a guy with a hand injury, and he has a hand injury. <laughs> well, people get mad and they punch walls, and he's underage and they drink. He's a good kid. And he's like, you're a fucking moron right now. <laughs> well, they, they drove over to this Keeley Avenue that he had reportedly punched the car window out on so mad they took a look around and they couldn't find any signs of broken glass on the street so even if somebody hadn't reported it you would expect to at least find some glass laying around somewhere they couldn't find any now while this was happening the famous forensic scientist dr henry lee i'm reading that and i don't know who that is you don't know who henry lee is i read dean Koontz. I don't know who Henry Lee is. He's very well known. He's sat in on many trials. He was part of the group on that um, JonBenet Ramsey special that they had. That was like a three-part. Was he on the show Autopsy on HBO? He might have been. If he wasn't, then I don't fucking know him. You'd probably know him if you saw him. I I should probably Google him. Yeah. He's very well known in, you know, high-profile Crime cases. What's his name? Henry Lee. I'm going to Google him. You keep going. Okay. See if I can get a face to it. Well, he was called to the scene to analyze the blood evidence. He found a bloody sock imprint about the same size as someone who would wear a size 13 shoe, which is about the size of shoe Big Iron Man Craig would wear. Now, I would assume that he either took his shoes off to silence his steps when he broke in Or they possibly came off in the struggle. But either way, they found this footprint from a sock about Craig's shoe size. So regardless, Craig was now their main suspect in the case. He had the injured hand and they had a footprint that was about his size. So the detectives decided to bring Craig down to the station for more detailed questioning about his hand. He stuck to a story about cutting it on a car window, but they weren't buying it. Is this him? Yes. I have no idea who this is. Oh my god. I don't know who this is. Get out. He's a doctor? Yeah. Is he good? Yeah, he's considered one of the best. I see Henry Lee Lucas, but I don't think that's him at all. (laughs) No, that's not. So, they bring Craig down, ask him about his hand. He stuck to his story about cutting it on a car window, and they weren't having any of that. So they asked him to take a polygraph test, and he returned the next day for it. Now, that's not admissible, is it? No. It's just an investigative tool. And I don't necessarily hold him in the highest regard. I think, yeah, maybe sometimes it can lead you where you need to go, but it's not fault-proof by any means. When Craig was asked about how his hand got injured, the lie detector test determined that was a lie. That was my Maury Povich impression. You are not telling the truth. That was good. Boo. Oh, my God. And they run off into the yeah, back. Yeah, they run into the back. Oh, my girl. <laughs> yeah, so he wasn't being exactly truthful. But just because he lied about his hand, it didn't prove that he was the murderer. So they started talking to Craig's friends and acquaintances. I think the thing with... It's with, with lie detector tests. It's not admissible, but I think it could sway a fucking jury for sure. You know, like uh, 
Like, oh, yeah, he, uh, you know, such and such, such such. And he was given a polygraph. He failed. And he's look, just do the slow turn to the jury. He's like, wink, wink. And that's why it's not admissible. I can't submit this as evidence. He can't even say that in court. I would say it in court and get disbarred. <laughs> but I would fucking take that case. I would sway everybody's opinion. Yeah, you know, um, uh, you did take a polygraph. And you fucking failed. And Juror number judge, seven, look at me in the face right now. Look at me in the face before the bailiff gets to me. And the judge would declare a mistrial and everything would be thrown out. And they would start with a whole new prosecutor and a whole new jury. But they'd drag me out of the court and be like, that motherfucker lied! <laughs> Your shit's weak! That's all you would get out of it. You suck! Get your hands off me, I'm in a suit! Well, the detectives learned from talking to people that knew Craig that he had been running burglaries with a group of other juvenile delinquents. But more importantly, they had people telling them that Craig had boasted about killing Rebecca Spencer. So they quickly obtained a search warrant for the Price House. On September 17th, in the early morning hours, the team moved in. They woke the family up and had them sit in the living room while the search warrant was carried out. And everyone appeared confused and distressed, except for Craig, who fell asleep on the couch. Now, there's conflicting information on where it was actually found, but investigators came across a bag either behind the shed or in the attic. I I got two different placements for where this was at. I don't know if He possibly had had it in one of the places and then moved it to the other. But either way, they they found it somewhere on the property. I think this shows guilt more than anything, really. Oh, oh, it does. He fell asleep. To me, I'm not a cop, but to me, everybody's sitting there nervous, anxious. Like, oh my God, are they going to find the weed? Are they going to find, you know, the gun I hid underneath the mattress? But you have that one guy's like, jigs up. (laughs) And he just goes to sleep. He's like... All right, well, it's been a good run. Well, more you know? more damning than his little nap is the fact that this bag they found held several bloody knives from the Heaton's house, bloodied articles of clothing, and gloves. Of opportunity. <laughs> Craig was immediately woken up again, handcuffed, and arrested for the murders of Joan, Jennifer, and Melissa Heaton. And he didn't even bat an eye. Now, at the station, Craig laid it all out for the investigators admitting to everything with his parents by his side. According to author Denise Lang in her book on the case, A Call for Justice, quote, What came out of his mouth next stunned even the most experienced and jaded listeners and sent his father, John Price, to the men's room to vomit, rendering him unable to return. I'm pretty jaded. I'm ready. (laughs) Craig said that the night of the murders... He entered the Heaton home through an open kitchen window to burglarize the house. He said he landed on a table and it broke under his weight, but he continued on prowling the house despite the noise it made. But the noise had evidently woken Joan, who went to the kitchen to investigate. When she flipped on the light, she saw Craig and he said he panicked. He grabbed Joan and started to beat and strangle her, but her screams had woken up Jennifer and Melissa who then ran into the hallway. As screams are one to do. Yeah. Melissa tried to run for the phone in the kitchen to call for help, but Craig stopped her, and then he said he tackled all of them, grabbed some of the kitchen knives, 
and just began to stab. That's crazy. Like, he just tackled him, grabbed a knife, and just went to work? Yeah. Well, I mean, you got to think, he's already beaten and strangled the mother. So, if she's not unconscious or dead already, she's injured. Mm-hmm. She's not going to be able to put up much of a fight. And then you've got a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old girl. You grab each one of them up in an arm and throw them down. I mean, he's a big hulking guy. Yeah. He claimed that during the attack, one of the two girls had bitten his hand, so he bit her on the face in a fit of rage. But it's never really specified in the research which one he bit. That's why I said both of them could have possibly been bitten in the face. Poor kids. He admitted to also biting Joan, as well as using the stool to smash Melissa's head because she continued to struggle with him. Good for her. Yeah. He said he hadn't expected them to fight so hard, and that he accidentally stabbed his own hand during the struggle. Once the three were dead, he took the gloves off of his injured hand, and he went into their bathroom to tend to the wound, not realizing that he'd left a whole fucking trail of his own blood and a bloody sock print. Tended to his hand, and then he came back. He covered the bodies with sheets and blankets, and for some reason tried to clean up the crime scene. I, I don't know why. At that point... There's no cleaning up you can do to cover up the brutal stabbing of, you know, these three females. At that point, just leave. Yeah. Well, he realized that it was taking too long, and decided that if someone had heard the struggle and called the cops, he better get the fuck out of there. So he grabbed up all the bloody knives and the towels and ran off, returning to his home just a few doors away, leaving that broken knife blade sticking out of that girl's neck. Like a weird-ass Santa Claus. Yeah. That is the opposite of what Santa should do. hmm No witnesses. Pew, pew. <laughs> When that confession was over, detectives asked about Rebecca Spencer. And he shocked them again by admitting to that murder as well, committed when he was just 13. He gave them the details of that night too, never showing any remorse for any of the four murders he committed. And it's said that he even mimicked the last sounds of his dying victims during his confession. And I hunted high and low trying to find even just a transcript of his confession, and I was unable to locate that. So, we've got this cold-blooded killer in custody. He's admitted to four murders. He's going away forever, right? Nope. No, this is Martinis and the Macabre. That shit doesn't happen. Never that Not easy. even close. So Craig was arrested and confessed just weeks shy of his 16th birthday. And according to Rhode Island state law at the time... He had to be charged as a minor. And his maximum punishment? Hold him in a training school until his 21st birthday and not a day longer. That'll teach him. Yeah, so basically this guy, who some would consider a full-fledged serial killer. I know some sources say it has to be three separate kills with a cooldown period in between. But some now say even just two with a cooldown. So some people would consider him an actual serial killer. Serves five years at a quote-unquote training school and walks out at 21 with a clean record despite viciously killing two women and two children with no remorse. He wouldn't even have to face a trial. The people of Rhode Island were pissed. Yeah. Mm Mm-mm, not in my state. No one 
felt that was a proper punishment for the crimes committed, and no one had any doubts that this fucker would kill again if he he was let out. But due to the law, everyone's hands were pretty much tied. Craig had to attend a court hearing before he could be placed in the training school, and that took place on September 21st of 1989. That's a rough year. You just think all of the 80s were rough? They weren't fun. Was there a good one? 81. When you were born? The best fucking year <laughs> ever. Okay, so when Craig was presented with the numerous murder and burglary charges, he pleaded guilty. And the court ordered him to Rhode Island Training School's Youth Correctional Center, or YCC. I guess that's similar to what we have here in town, the YOC. Yeah, the YOC. Yeah. Youth Opportunity Center. Yeah, a lot of opportunity. To give it a positive connotation. Yeah, you wouldn't believe how many people <laughs> come into my store with a polo shirt that's stitched with YOC on there. <laughs> Every time I'm like, good day at the office, they're like, <laughs> no, never. Never a good day at the office. It's horrible. Yeah. This place was a maximum security detention facility for juveniles, which is similar to what we have. I think ours has like a higher security area and then one that's, you know, you're not like in an actual cell, but you have bunks and stuff. From what I'm told by a family member who has been there, they cut the toes off your flip-flops. Cut the toes off your flip-flops. They give you sandals. Not flip-flops, but they give you sandals where you get the band going over your foot. Uh-huh. You know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. Yeah, they cut the toes off of them. Why? Can't run. Ah, nice. And they give you a blanket. That's all you get. You could use it as a blanket or a pillow. Your choice. That's all you get. Huh. That and three quarters of a sandal. <laughs> Have fun. Well, at this YCC... Craig was ordered to serve five years and also ordered to undergo extensive psychological examination and therapy. But his lawyer had another idea. Do you think there he was like the Hannibal Lecter of the place? I don't know. You know, had to be brought in on a fucking cart with a mask. I don't know about all that. We'll we'll get into his stay while he's there. I'm just saying he bit people. (laughs) Following his lawyer's advice... Craig now pleaded the fifth and refused to discuss anything involving the murders, and he refused psychological treatment. Court documents stated the reasoning behind these decisions was that psychiatric examinations might, quote-unquote, result in his being placed in a psychiatric facility for commitment beyond his 21st birthday. So basically his lawyer was like, yeah, he's fucking crazy, and if he goes in front of a psychologist or a psychiatrist... They're going to think he's crazy, too, and then he's going to be locked up longer than his 21st birthday. They thought that would work out worse for him. I could, in a way, I could, in a way, see that. You know, like, the lawyer himself is following the law. You know what I mean? Like, he is, he's looking at everything with a fine-tooth comb, and he's like, okay, well, this is, if it's a day past 21st birthday, you have to get out. That was the ruling. He's not That's what it is. following the law, per se. Let me explain that just a little farther. Despite the court trying to intervene, Craig continued to refuse exams and treatment, and he just kind of went on with his new life at the YCC. But he was still technically court-ordered to receive the psych exams. He just was refusing. Can you do that? I guess that's refusing medical treatment, right? Well... 
We'll, we'll get more into that in just a minute. Sorry. Over the next few years, Craig seemed to improve. He got his GED, which is the high school equivalency degree. Since you made such a big stink about it the last time, I'm going to say it again. What did I do? You said that people should know that. We have listeners in other countries. Yeah, that's what I said. Okay. <laughs> I'm looking out for you guys, but for some reason she's mad at me. I don't know what I did. Because I explained what it was, and you said, they should know what a GED is. And I said, some people aren't from here in the U.S. Oh, you said it. I didn't say yeah. it. Yeah. Uh... Wow, you were really drunk that night. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Shit, that did not work out for me at all. Yeah, so he got his GED, and he started taking some college courses. You guys know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and by 1993... That's a horrible year. Do you have any good years? He does not. He doesn't. What about you? Besides 1981. Oh, God. I have a lot of good years. On your car? No. Ooh, do I? (laughs) I have no clue. I don't either. (laughs) I'm not going to go look. I don't expect you to. 1996 was a great year, sweetie. Oh, thanks. Mm Mm-hmm. Don't you wink at me. What? You're just saying that to appease me? No. I love you and I met the love of my life. And we... You didn't meet me in 96. No, but we got together in 96. Yeah. What is this? What's happening? What are you doing? What are you doing? Nothing. Why are you questioning about years? 93 sucked. What happened in 93 that sucks so bad? That guy died, remember? Hmm. I seem to remember us meeting in 1993. But that guy died. What guy? Yeah, shut up. Well. <laughs> 93 is probably fine. I don't yeah. know. It was a long time ago. I have no idea. Well, by 1993, Craig even had a reputation for good behavior. So good that his superiors allowed him to counsel other juveniles at the YCC. Fuck that. John Wayne Gacy was a deacon in prison. All right. <laughs> Carry on. Erica Go, I guess. <laughs> So uh, he helped counsel the other kids there. He helped patrol the school's halls and was even allowed to make a rap video, despite its inclusion of threatening lyrics. But word got out about a special treatment, which was just salt in the wounds for the victims' families and the citizens of Rhode Island. People began to protest Craig's treatment, and it was eventually stopped. But they knew time was running out. In less than 18 months, he would be free and walking among them. A campaign had been started to stop Craig's release, and it was headed by Joan Heaton's mother and sister, Captain Kevin Collins, who had been the lead investigator on the Heaton case, and Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Pine. They lobbied the legislature to enact new bills to prevent the release of criminals like Craig. In 1990, the O'Neill Bill... In 1990, the O'Neill Bill passed. More food. Meh. You have to watch that again. That's so good. The O'Neill Bill passed. You say it. The O'Neill Bill passed. You know what you could really do in court nowadays? I think if I was ever brought up on charges and they asked me questions on the stand, I, I would be like... 
If you go back to the O'Neill bill, you'll see that everything you're saying is null and void. Everybody will fucking believe me. <laughs> really, dude. It would take a paralegal to have to actually dig through books and be like, he has no idea what the fuck he's talking about. And I'd be like, <laughs> guilty and guilty. But <laughs> I think, like, I, I saw this in uh, that movie, uh, Law Abiding Citizen, with Gerald Butler. Gerard. Gerard Butler. And he, and it's a good he, movie. He represented himself. He was like, well, you know, if you go to such and such V, such and such, you'll see that I, you know, am within my rights of such and such. And furthermore, the blah, 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 act of whatever gear. Fucking, and the judge was like, I'm inclined to agree with you. And he even started clapping. He was like, I just fed you a load of shit and you just agreed with me. I'm just making a point that they have all this stuff that if I was ever on trial, I would be like, well, if you refer back. Back to that horrible year of 1993. You'll see the O'Neill Act, you know, and, and they'll be like, oh, fuck, he knows. He got his general education diploma. GED. Yeah. And they'll be like, he's a hardliner. They'd be like, you mean his high school equivalency? I'd be like, you guys know. <laughs> they know. <laughs> Counselor. Yeah, so this O'Neill bill allowed the courts to give teenage murderers tougher sentences. And, and they should. Because it, it's it, it's not like, oh, you know, let's, you know, electrocute the kid. I'm not saying that. But I understand. Because you have kids that grow up rough who, who, who genuinely make mistakes. Yeah, I don't think there should be a standard minimum. Yeah. It shouldn't be so broad. Or a standard maximum. Yeah. It's like, you know, this one kid who who vandalized and graffitied and got caught on Grand Theft Auto. You know, he has to serve the same term as a guy who killed four or five people. Like, that's not fair. Yeah. It doesn't matter what your fucking age is. If you're bad, you're bad. And if you make mistakes, you make mistakes. But if you kill, like, three or four people, that wasn't a mistake. You don't trip and fall on a banana peel and kill four people. Yeah. You know, like that's that's something of course you take and into savagely take into them. effect is not so much like what's the punishment? The punishment should fit the crime, absolutely, but at the same time they have to take into effect, okay, after this time is served, if he's what, fifteen mm-hmm. and he's let out at twenty one, is that enough time for him to be really rehabilitated? Is that enough time for him to live among society because he killed four people there's this and one he started kid, two years prior to this when he was 13 there's this one kid who stole a car got gas never paid drove off got pinched i think he's learned his lesson and then there's the guy that stabbed somebody 60 something fucking times mm-hmm. maybe we should clock in overtime and keep him wearing toeless fucking sandals mm-hmm. for a while. But that's just me. Maybe I'm wrong. But there's a letter of the law. Well, And I have to respect that. And, and they were pushing for all these new bills. And aside from the O'Neill bill, which would give them tougher sentences, in 1993, while Craig was wrapping it up with his threatening lyrics, the Craig Price bill passed. He actually has a bill named after him. Jesus. This bill gave the Office of the Attorney General the power to civilly commit someone who was mentally ill and posed a danger to society to a mental institution. 
And some people I read did oppose this. They thought it might be, um, that it might cast people with mental illnesses in a bad light. And yeah. kind of, you know. I could see that. I could totally see that because you have people in mental institutions that know they have a problem that want help. And then. But this is people that are specifically in. mentally ill and posing a danger to society. So I guess that's how they got around it. You know what it makes me think of? Sling Blade. The movie Sling Blade. I always go back to documentaries. Um, Sling Blade, you have this, you know, you have Billy Bob Thornton and, and the other actor. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. But he's sitting there talking about, like, all these girls he's killed and raped and molested, all that stuff, you know. But, you know, Billy Bob Thornton's character is just staring outside the window. He is crazy and he needs help. This guy's a fucking killer. Mm-hmm. They should not be in the same room. In my opinion, they should not be in the same room. They should not be in the same building. And you are actually kind of making, you know, if, if you if you have enough people in the mental institution who are there for murdering God knows how many people, each person killed this many fucking people, and then you have this person that has to walk in a circle ten times and then make a sound with his throat going, before he turns out a fucking light. That's totally fucking different, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. I get it. Well, they got this bill passed. And then October of that same year, Captain Collins organized a nonprofit organization called CORP, C-O-R-P, which stood for Citizens Opposed to the Release of Price. Their goal was to raise funds to increase the public's awareness of Craig's crimes and to lobby for changes. So it was basically a... Keep this motherfucker behind bars. Go fund me. That's a good cause. Yeah. Is it still up? I'd throw money in there. <laughs> I don't believe so. Uh, the campaign continued into 1994 and was even brought to then-President Clinton's awareness during a visit to Rhode Island. Upon arriving in Providence, Clinton was met by demonstrators in an airplane circling overhead, pulling a huge banner that read, quote, Alert, killer of four, Craig Price moving here. Damn. During a televised interview, Clinton voiced dismay about Craig's upcoming release, and he suggested then that laws be changed to prevent juveniles with violent records from being allowed to purchase firearms. And here we are 24 years later. (laughs) I get it, though. Clinton's concerned. Get off the plane looking up and seeing that. He's like, what the fuck is that? (laughs) Do I need to get back on the plane? During this time, (laughs) Craig was preparing for his upcoming release and new life. But things hit a snag. On June 8th, Craig was indicted for one count of simple assault and extortion for threatening to injure training school employee officer Mark Petrella. His trial was scheduled for later that fall. And to make Craig's matters worse... He had been ordered on at least six occasions to complete the psychological exams originally ordered, and he was now facing contempt of court. Wah, wah, wah. So, yeah, he could refuse them, but he would also be held in contempt. <laughs> so, a hearing was held on June 27th, and Craig was once again ordered to have a psych eval done, and yet he still refused. He was found in contempt of court, and another year of incarceration was tacked on to be served at the Adult Correctional Institution in Cranston, Rhode Island. Snap. 
So in an effort to get that sentence reduced, Craig finally gave in and complied with the assessment, though he kind of did it half-assed. He was there, but he wasn't really participating. The assault and extortion trial began on October 3rd. Sound like the whole thing he did was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, whatever. Okay. Yeah, you do you. I don't give a shit. I'm already here. Well, this I can't run because of the sandals. Fuck it. Just don't. Whatever. It makes you feel good. Well, this trial um, revolved around Officer Mark Petrella. He had found a lighter and cigarettes in Craig's possession, and he was attempting to have Craig sign a disciplinary report for the contraband. And to sum it up, Craig got pissed and started yelling profanities at the officer and told him that he would quote-unquote snuff him if he returned to work at the facility. The incident was witnessed by multiple officers who then took the stand and testified that Craig was threatening Petrella and that they had heard him use the word snuff. Two witnesses called by the defense denied Craig had made that threat, but did behave in a threatening way. So they kind of shot themselves in the foot with these two witnesses. So the defense, in a last-ditch effort to save their client, allowed Craig to take the stand in his own defense. Well, during the cross-examination, Craig pretty much sealed his own fate and flew into a rage, yelling that he was the only honest person to take the stand and that the charges were all a conspiracy to keep him behind bars. And that conspiracy was headed by the prosecutors. Those They're out jerks. to get me. Well, the jury didn't believe him, and they found him guilty on both counts on October 7th. The punishment hearing was held later that year in December, and Craig was sentenced to 15 years, with eight suspended at the adult correctional institution he had been threatened with before. Now he would be joining the big dogs. And his problems didn't stop there. Over the years in prison, Craig Price has repeatedly had hearings related to multiple crimes and violations which have kept him behind bars to this day. In 1996, during a prison brawl, Craig bit a correctional officer's finger. He really? biting. Yeah, he has a thing for biting. He's a biter. Well, for that, another year was added. Do you think, like, if he bit two fingers, he'd get two years? I don't know. You think that was just a year for finger? He went on trial in 1997 for criminal contempt because he refused to comply with the psychological evaluations that had been ordered. And this was because psychiatrists claimed he participated, but lied about events surrounding the murders. He wasn't taking part in the actual evaluations. He was just a body sitting there. So Craig admitted to the charges, was found guilty, and there's another 25 years 10 of which are to be served behind bars with 15 more of probation. I mean, they threw the book at him for that. October 1998, seven more years for assault on a correctional officer. February of 1999, and again in October of 2001, assaulting correctional officers. These earned him another four years. July 29, 2009, attacked a guard with a shank and sliced his finger. This one got him transferred to a prison in Florida. He's he, not even in Rhode Island now. He really didn't even give a fuck. No. And <laughs> it as, got to where Rhode Island was like, dude, we're done. <laughs> Fucking go somewhere else. <laughs> well, as it stands now, Craig's release date is set for May of 2020. But 
this is why I had to move this episode to now, May 21st, 2018, so within just a week or two, he is set to stand trial for allegedly stabbing another inmate at the Suwannee Correctional Institution in Live Oak, Florida, with a homemade five-inch knife. This date has, as far as I can tell, been pushed back three times already, so this time, fingers crossed. We're doing it. Let's see if we can tack some more years onto him so he doesn't get out in the next two years. So, it would seem that justice is prevailing by Craig's own doing. We just need to sit back and watch him rot. Because he's doing it to himself. You know, he really is driving the nails in his own coffin. Yeah. So, he has been in prison since 1989. Although, I give credit where credit's due. He's pretty honest. I mean, like... When you ask him about it, he's like, yeah, I killed him. Yeah, he did. He confesses. And he has, um, it's been reported, I I watched several news articles where he's been in court and he's blown up in these loud, profane outbursts in court. He can't control himself. Um, He's threatened to kill, I don't know how many bailiffs and correctional officers I mean, I just listed the ones that he got additional time for that I could find. There could be other ones out there that they may have just, you know, tacked it onto his time as just a standard penalty for whatever he was doing. So, here we are. We're looking at, what, almost 30 years? Yeah. Almost 30 years he's been in prison. He was only supposed to be mm-hmm. in for five. And it wasn't because of the murders. He has done it to himself. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. So, obviously, this guy cannot control himself, and he is not somebody that needs to be back out on the streets. But technically, the only way to keep him in is if he keeps fucking up. And that's what's kept him in this long. And he was crazy his last little bit. I heard shit about a lawyer. I'm pretty sure his lawyer at this point was like, Shut the fuck up. Fucking stop. Sit down. Keep your hands to yourself. Don't bite anybody. What is with you, Don't man? Don't make a shank. Shut your mouth. I hear a lot of people convert to Christ. Why didn't you get on that boat? Yeah. Sit in your bunk and read a book every single fucking day. You've got two years. Just sit there and read. He probably killed the lawyer who's like, where the red fern grows? And then fucking just stabbed him to death. <laughs> with his five-inch homemade shank. Yep. <laughs> All right, so... This one wraps up our third Kids Who Kill. First one where we had a, a solo topic on... Solo performance. Yeah. So we hope you guys enjoyed that. Goddamn, Craig. <laughs> yeah, Craig Price. I had never heard of this guy, but wow. You know, he's been doing so much time behind bars. I'm not going to say Greg. I'll say Craig. I'm old Craig! <laughs> That works well. Go on YouTube and look up I'm Old Greg. It's creepy. Old Greg. Billy thinks it's funny. It's the funniest shit ever. Well, if you guys enjoyed this episode, please be sure to get on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating and a review. It or means, whatever rating you feel. Yeah. Five-star would be highly appreciated. Uh, if you don't feel it's know. five, then okay. It's cool. But we'd really like the five. And it does help, you know, with our visibility. Um, it makes us, us e- up in the charts. It makes us easier to find. Yeah. 
And we really don't have that many reviews. So we're asking you guys, please, please, please get on there. Leave us some reviews. Tell us what you think. We would truly appreciate it. If you really want to let us know how you feel about us, you can go to our recently started Patreon page. It's patreon.com backslash martinis and the macabre. And we have four patrons so far. So big shout outs to Kate, Hunter, Cooper, and our newest one, Bridget. Thank you, Bridget. Hi, Bridget. We appreciate you guys so much. By the time this episode comes out, you should have already gotten your stuff because I should be mailing it out tomorrow. And we still have like five days before this episode comes out. So. You can do it. So hopefully you guys will have all this by then. But we appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for the donations. It really means a lot. And um, just keep listening, keep sharing. And we'll keep busting it out for you guys. You can... Um, Find us on social media at Martinis and Macabre on Facebook and Instagram and Martini underscore Macabre on Twitter. You can visit our website, martinisandthemacabre.com. There's a full listing of all the episodes, season one and season two. You just click on them. It will redirect you to our new hosting webpage where you can listen to all of them in their entirety. So I know if you are one of the few people that would listen through that. I think most people use a a podcatcher app. But if you do go on there and listen, where it redirects you to, it's completely safe, but it just looks different than our last homepage that we had. But you can listen to us on that because we are on Megaphone now. We, We just recently migrated from Libsyn. And if you're not following us on social media, you didn't see the notice that I recently put out that evidently with the migration, we are not currently available on Spotify. So if you do listen through Spotify, you're not hearing this. <laughs> Sorry, dude. But we did put that out there. I, we are hoping that that will be something that will get integrated soon. But we can't give any kind of specific time span on it. In the meantime, like I said, find us on our website. Or you can visit our webpage directly. I've put links up on our Facebook page, Martinis and the Cobb. And please, while you're on there, go ahead and join our fan base page, Friends Who Like Martinis and the Cobb. We try and keep on top of sharing the same stuff to both. So no matter which one you're on, hopefully you'll catch all the latest news and the deets and the stuffs. We also strongly encourage you guys to get on iTunes. Minimus Noah is on iTunes, he's on SoundCloud, he's on Spotify, and he's now working with a new distributor he, of his Well, music. he is testing out a new distributor right now, but we'd really like you to take a listen to his first actual public release of an album available for purchase. It's called Views, and it's by Minimus Noah, and um... I've used, I think, one or two tracks off of it so far, and I will put another track at the end of this episode for your listening pleasure. But go check that out. It would mean a lot. He has really grown as a musician in the past year or two since he started doing this, and you can really hear it in his music, and it's much more mature, and it's more worldly, and it's just, it's really, really good. So please go do that. And, of course, like we said at the beginning, 
listen to murder and such. Hunter and Haley are great. And um, I think that about wraps it up for this week. Yep. So all that being said, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you patrons for your donations. Stay safe and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
not trying to sound like I'm better than anybody, but I'm like, I looked at it, I was like, no class. No fucking class at all. But then I was like, Walmart parking lot. Yeah, this is, yeah. And then, sure as shit, I was loading up groceries and I heard, you know, and the car unlocked. I just happened to glance over. It was a woman carrying a kid like the kid was a fucking duffel bag, wearing a North Face vest, fucking yoga pants, and Ugg boots. And I was like, oh, God damn it, anyway. Was her name Dakota? Probably. Probably. <laughs> 